pray together. Lord God, we bow before you, acknowledging this morning your great majesty. Lord, you are the God who can bring order out of any chaos. You are the God who can bring peace where it seems there is just turmoil and anxiety. Lord, you are the God who can bring help when we are in danger. And I pray today, Lord, as we open your word to a passage in the Gospels, that you would come and powerfully so work on our hearts that we would leave this place later today knowing that you are that God, that powerful God who can bring rescue, who can bring hope, who can bring peace in the most dire situation. Lord God, be with us now as we open your word. May your spirit come and work powerfully amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a past sermon, um, I introduced you, because I'm proud of him, I introduced you to my grandfather uh, who fought in France during World War I uh, with the Canadian Expeditionary Force. And he died when I was only three years old. Uh, my grandfather spent just over 1,100 days in the service from early 1916 until early 1919. And so many of those 1,100 days were spent in the trenches in France. Now, life in the trenches in World War I was very unpleasant. It was a dirty existence where uh, the potential for disease was very real. To mention just a few things here, the, the trenches would regularly fill up with water when it rained, mud everywhere, and the woolen clothes that you were wearing would obviously soak right through. And rats everywhere. Rats that were bent on eating your rations, rats that were so accustomed to people that they would simply crawl over you, and in some cases bite your face when you were trying to get 10 minutes of sleep. And lice. By one report, over 95% of soldiers were affected by lice. And because there were so many unburied corpses right above you on the battlefield, lying exposed there, the flies were also thick and very unbearable. It was an unsanitary, unclean, awful environment to be in. Well, my grandfather was just 20 years old when he first found himself in that filthy and anxious environment, waiting for the order to go over the top to advance against the occupying army. Well, friends, I've begun this, this morning's sermon in that, that rather stark and grim kind of a way because it connects directly to a major theme in our preaching passage, the theme of uncleanness and filthiness. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus, the divine warrior, advances into filthy, unclean, dangerous territory in his campaign to take back what belonged 
to God. And we begin this morning at Mark 5, verse 1. They, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, New Testament commentators are not entirely sure of the precise pinpoint location of the country of the Gerasenes, but we do know that it lay within the larger region called the Decapolis, in yellow there on the screen. The Decapolis was an area of 10 cities which had been established about three centuries earlier, and it was home to a largely Gentile population. The best scholarly guess is that the country of the Gerasenes lay at the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee within this area of the Decapolis. And this whole area, we need to understand, this whole area was what Carl Truman has called a showcase for Greco-Roman culture. A showcase for Greco-Roman culture. Gentile Greeks, and Romans made up the majority of the population here, and their cultural influence was everywhere. Jewish influence in this region was almost nil. There was very little concern, if any concern at all, for Jewish rules and rights of cleanness and purity. Well, no sooner had the little boat reached this very un-Jewish place, when something happened. Verse 2, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately a phone rang. <laughs> immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, in the Gospel writer Luke's version of this same story, he includes the detail in Luke 8, 27, that this man who comes up to Jesus had not worn clothes for a long time. In other words, this guy was naked in public. He had zero regard for his own personal dignity. This naked man appears immediately before Jesus, having come out of the tombs. In other words, he had been living amongst the dead. And there's the phone again. <laughs> As Larry Hurtado says here, this man resembles a zombie, a sort of living dead man. And every Jewish person knew from Numbers chapter 19 that the dead in their tombs were unclean and that any contact with a dead person rendered you unclean. So this man is unclean. This man is filthy and dirty just by virtue of the fact that he lives naked in this very unclean place among the tombs. But this man, we notice, is further occupied by an unclean spirit, a morally filthy spirit, an evil spirit. This poor man, this poor man, he's lost all sense of personal dignity, he's unclean, he is socially isolated, 
He's occupied by a filthy, evil spirit. Now, we wonder here who his family members were. No doubt, if he had family in the area, there was significant grief on their side. Had they made attempts to come out to this place to help him? Perhaps they had, and they had failed, and they had left feeling rather helpless. Verses 3 and 4, he lived among the tombs, just to remind us again of his uncleanness. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Now there is some serious tragedy in these verses. These verses give us a little history, don't they, of how people had often, it says, tried to bind this man and shackle this man and chain this man since had, it had become so obvious by now that this man was a real danger both to himself and to the wider community. We get the picture here that this man was simply out of control, that he was a terror to those who lived in the region. Every parent in the area had probably, no doubt, had to sit down their children and warn them very seriously about the danger of wandering over to the tombs. Don't go over to the tombs for any reason. That maniac lives over there and he'll harm you. They had often tried binding him up, chaining him, putting shackles on him, but notice he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one, no one had the strength to subdue him. And that word subdue there toward the end of verse four is translated from the same Greek word that gets used over in James chapter 3, verse 7, where James is describing there how beasts, reptiles, birds, and sea creatures can be tamed by human beings. Well, no one could tame this man. If animals can all be tamed, this man could not. He could not be subdued. No one had the strength to subdue or tame him. His strength was so abnormally great, abnormally great, that he overpowered everyone while he was also breaking the chains and the shackles in pieces. There, there's no other way to say this, friends, than this. This man had superhuman strength. Strength that went far beyond what you would expect just looking at the guy something otherworldly was going on here with this man as he shattered chains and shackles and pushed off every person who had, who had attempted to tame him, to subdue him. And then on top of that, there was the shrieking and the wailing and the crying at all hours. Verse five, 
night and day without respite. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. Always crying out. If you lived anywhere near this area and it was 2 a.m., you would be awake in your bed hearing all those very shrill screams that were coming from outside. This naked, superhumanly strong man of the tombs occupied by this filthy spirit crying and shrieking at all hours. And Mark tells us also in this verse that he was always cutting himself with Stones, meaning that this, this man was also self-destructive on top of everything else, always cutting himself open with stones. Imagine this naked man lacerating himself, lots of blood, lots of scarring. My friends, the picture that we are given here in Scripture in verses 2 through 5 is, I think you would agree, a horrific picture. It's a horrific picture. The condition of this human being is absolutely wretched. And he appears to be beyond all human help. Now, I pause here to say, how cruel is Satan? Are you with me? How cruel is Satan? How he hates human beings who are made in the image of God how he seeks to destroy and to cause us to suffer. He would have it that every human being would be dislodged from reality and disoriented in this world and harming themselves. Well, verse 6 then begins to fill out uh, the details of this meeting between this poor man and Jesus Christ. And when he saw Jesus from afar, so get the picture here, when, when he set eyes on Jesus, just as Jesus is getting out of the boat on the beach, this man did what? He ran and fell down before Jesus. I wonder what the disciples were thinking at this point. Jesus, first of all, why did you want us here? Why did, why did you want to bring us here to the Decapolis, to this unclean Gentile area? And now there's this terrifying-looking naked man who is sprinting toward us. Can we please, Jesus, can we just get back in the boat and start paddling back out to sea? But I want you to notice this, as Mark Edwards points out, friends, Jesus goes here. Yes, Jesus goes here. This is Jesus. Jesus goes into this unclean, scary territory on purpose. This is what Jesus does. The divine warrior, my friends, is advancing purposefully into enemy, enemy territory, yes? And as he does, notice, this tormented man meets him, meets Jesus, and falls down before him, falls 
down before him. When you fall down before someone, you are reverencing that person. Somehow there is an instantaneous recognition here from this tormented man that this Jesus is worthy of reverence. Verse 7, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Notice. There is an instant recognition here of the true identity of Jesus Christ, yes? Now, just eight verses prior to this, we need to see this, eight verses prior at Mark, Mark 4.41, the human characters in the story, the disciples, had wondered aloud concerning the identity of Jesus. After he had calmed the sea, they said, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Well, if the disciples had been a little bit confused and a little bit bewildered about who Jesus actually was, the unclean spirit who lives in this tormented man is not confused. The unclean spirit understands fully, understands completely who Jesus really is. This dirty spirit identifies Jesus, notice, as son of the most high God. The unclean spirit understands perfectly well that Jesus is the son of the transcendent, supreme, and superior God. And this would explain why there was that falling down and bowing before Jesus in verse 6. Now, do notice, friends, do notice the weirdness here, uh, the creepy nature of what this evil spirit says to Jesus. The evil spirit expresses some frustration, even as it is causing its host, causing the man to bow down. What have you to do with me, Jesus? In another version, in the 1995 New American Standard Bible, the question is render, rendered like this. What business do we have with each other, Jesus? Or in the Net Bible, leave me alone, Jesus. The unclean spirit knows who it is that is standing there. It's Jesus. It's God the Son. It's the divine warrior with his all-powerful self, the second person of the Trinity. And there is no contest to be had now. There is no contest to be had now. The one standing on that beach is the one who has appeared to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. And the unclean spirit knows it full well and the spirit expresses this panic and this frustration. And then it says to Jesus, notice, I adjure you by God, as if God is a third party here. Jesus is the son of God, right? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, isn't this a twisted request, considering the fact that this unclean spirit has been 
tormenting and torturing its host, the man in the tombs, and has been doing that for so long. I'm free to torment this man, but don't you torment me, Jesus, right? See the twistedness of that? I adjure you by God, do not torment me, for Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And we have to pause here to ask the question. Who is being addressed here in this question that Jesus asks? Is Jesus asking for the name of the tormented man himself, or is Jesus asking for the name of the unclean spirit who has taken up residence in the man? And I think it's most likely that Jesus is asking the unclean spirit to state its name since the unclean spirit has been just speaking to Jesus through the man. And perhaps the reason why Jesus asks it's not for his own information. I think the reason he asks the evil spirit to state its name is for the benefit of the tormented man himself. To allow this poor man to understand the identity, to understand the nature of this parasitical evil spirit that has attached itself to him so that the man can understand that his own personal identity image bearer of God with a name given to him by his parents that his own personal identity is separate from the identity of this ugly thing that is occupying him. Well, friends, when the divine warrior asks a question, you answer. And so the unclean spirit replies in verse 9, my name is is legion, for we are many. Now notice more weirdness and more disorder here. My name is legion, for we are many. There is this bizarre shift from the singular my to the plural we. There is a collective of demons in this poor man, a collective that can speak in the same breath as a we or as a me. And the specific name that is given here is legion, which is very, very significant. Listen, this whole story, this whole story is taking place in a time when the Roman army dominated and occupied the whole country. And everybody understood what a Roman legion was. A Roman legion was the largest troop unit of the Roman army, made up of five to 6,000 foot soldiers with an occupying cavalry of 120 horsemen. And in this time period, in this region, whenever a Jewish person would think about those words, Roman legion, that Jewish person would be thinking about a formidable group of trained, seemingly invincible soldiers occupying the land and oppressing the Jewish people. 
And when this demonic parasite inside this man calls itself, calls themselves legion, this is military talk, yes? There is an occupying force inside this man, an oppressive demonic unit of troops, or as the commentator Hebert says, this man is occupied by a veritable army of militant spirits. A veritable army of militant spirits. They reside in this man with the intent to do what? To oppress, to terrorize, and to destroy him to wipe away every one of his image-bearing capacities. This man is suffering so enormously. I hope we see this in the text. He's suffering so enormously. He's playing host to a veritable army of diabolical and filthy demons. Legion. But notice this. Legion is, is fully aware that it, or he, or they whatever you want to call it, that legion stands zero chance against the divine warrior Jesus Christ. This army of demons is hopelessly and utterly outmatched by the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, legion resorts to begging, to imploring, to whining. And he begged Jesus earnestly, not just begged, but begged earnestly, not to send them out of the country. Notice carefully, friends, that the demonic army does not mount any sort of attack on Jesus here. They know the game is already over. They know that they have to abandon the territory that they've been occupying. They know that the divine warrior is about to send them away and they will have no choice whatsoever but to comply. Now, we don't know why they seem particularly attached to this specific geographical territory. Notice they earnestly beg Jesus not to send them out of the country, out of the specific location. And so we wonder, and this is just conjecture, but had Satan himself ordered this legion to undertake specific assignments in this particular geographical area. We wonder, we can't be sure of that. But notice where the story goes next, verse 11. Now, a great herd of what kind of animals? Pigs. I love my pork shoulder. <laughs> a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Now, we've already noticed how this man was living in Gentile territory in a quintessentially unclean place, right, among the tombs, how he's been overtaken by an unclean spirit, and now we get more uncleanness that is piled on here in verse 11 with these pigs, because of course, according to Old Testament law, pigs were unclean animals. Leviticus 11.7 specifically named pigs as being unclean, and to work with pigs made a person unclean. Now, somebody owns this great herd of pigs. This is somebody's business. This herd of pigs is money in the bank. 
For the person or for the persons who are raising them, there is a definite economic factor here. But remember, friends, all of this is happening in Gentile territory where there are no qualms here about eating pork or bacon. It could be, it could be that the farmer had been raising these pigs to supply the occupying Roman army with lots of pork chops. Or it could be that these pigs were destined to end up as sacrifices to the idol Zeus or to the false god Athena or Dionysius. But from a Jewish perspective, these pigs and those who handled them were unclean, as we've said, and the man is occupied by an unclean spirit, and he lives in an unclean environment of the tombs. There's so much filth in this story. And again, friends, Jesus, we need to understand, has purposely, oh, get this, he has purposely entered this place of filth. The divine warrior has come into the dirty trenches here, and he is about to force out this occupying legion. He's about to deliver this man. Did you know that there is no person who is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ? Amen. If you're here today and you feel unclean, you feel dirty, in some way, don't despair. You are not outside the merciful and the compassionate reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 12, they, the legion of unclean demons, begged him, there's a lot of begging in this passage. They begged him saying, send us to the unclean pigs and let us enter them. I guess parasites must have a host, right? And if it can't be the man, then let it be the pigs. And quite amazingly, friends, Jesus grants their request. Verse 13, so he gave them permission. Now watch. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now just imagine in your mind's eye, imagine if you can, the picture here, the scene here. 2,000 pigs they had been blissfully feeding on that hillside. Now suddenly they are rushing together headlong into a watery grave. Now, if each pig had only one single unclean spirit that had come from the man, that means there had been at least 2,000 of these vile things that had been tormenting the man. Collectively, again, friends, we need to see that collectively these demons had tried to destroy the man, and their plan of destroying God's creation did not change, because now they destroy the pigs. 
Now, if you were an eyewitness to this event, there would absolutely be no way for you to explain this uh, from a purely uh, psychiatric vantage point. In other words, it wasn't just that this man had been suffering from some sort of treatable chemical imbalance of some sort. Because listen, the voice that had been using the vocal cords of the man had requested, had asked to be sent into this herd of pigs. And the next thing that happened, no, uh, just imagine this, the next thing that happened was that that herd of pigs that are external to this suffering man, they absolutely went into a frenzy and they careened down the hill into the sea. This, this had no mere psychiatric or psychological explanation. This, friends, was an extreme manifestation of spiritual warfare. That's what this was. The transfer of these spirit beings from the man to the pigs was an acute and very tangible demonstration of the sheer raw power of Jesus Christ. This was truly, truly awesome. Fearful. And just as God himself had drowned the enemy army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea, that Egyptian army that had been bent on the destruction of God's people Israel, well now Jesus, the Son of God, drowns legion in the sea, drowns the demonic army that had been bent on destroying this man. This is new Exodus stuff right here. Jesus, God in the flesh, come to execute the new exodus, come to carry out the new liberation of his people from sin, death, and the devil, just as Isaiah had prophesied would happen, the new exodus. Jesus comes to fight for his people. Do we see that? He comes to fight for his people. He comes to destroy the works of the devil. Well, word soon travels, of course it would, about this fearful, profoundly fearful event. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled. They took off right away. They told it in the city, got it on their devices maybe and in person, told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. They had to see it with their own eyes. So astonishing was this report. And what do they see? Notice verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw what? They saw the demon-possessed man, that man who had just been naked, disruptive, dangerous, dirty, terrifying to everybody. They saw him, the same man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there. He's no longer running around the tombs like a maniac. Sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. No more screeching. No more cutting himself with stones. No more breaking chains and breaking shackles. Sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Restored, friends made whole, 
set free, liberated, sane, self-controlled by the power of Jesus Christ. And the people were afraid. Fear was upon the people. Why? Because something eerily powerful had just taken place here, something that was beyond anybody's ability to explain. A power had been at work here that was just simply overwhelming. That man, whatever had controlled that man, had been so terrifying. He had been so abnormally strong, hadn't he? But something stronger had just shown up, yes? And they were afraid. Now, in the story just prior to this, in Mark, Jesus had so powerfully controlled the wind and the waves, calming the storm, and the people had reacted with great fear. Mark 4.41, now Jesus has stepped into this filthy situation, and in his power, he has calmed another storm. He has calmed the storm inside this demon-possessed man. He has freed this man of what had bound him in such a powerful way. And again, the people react with great fear. When the one who can calm any chaos appears in power, the reaction is fear. Jesus has done for this man what no person or persons were capable of doing. The divine warrior has waged war, he has taken territory, and there is an appropriate fear. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. So word continues to travel. Uh, I think it would be very appropriate probably in this situation right here. Maybe, maybe we should go and rent out the town hall and get a bunch of food and celebrate, right? Because this man has been set free so miraculously and so thoroughly, it's worth celebrating. And now your kids can go out and roam freely in the area again without having to, to fear. So let's put on a banquet and celebrate the good, the great power that's been unleashed in mercy for this man. But no. Verse 17 kind of surprises us, I think. Instead of, instead of throwing a party, they began to beg Jesus to get out of there, depart from their region. They want Jesus to leave immediately. Uh, friends, it would seem that when God shows up in power, people can't handle it. <laughs> when God shows up in power, people can't handle They want him gone. God's power and his presence disrupts our routines too much. They want Jesus to leave because the money they had been expecting to earn from that herd of pigs drowned in the water with the pigs. It had been like ripping up a stack of $100 bills when those pigs drowned. This was a huge economic loss for these people who fed the occupying Romans, and who sold bacon for idol sacrifice. This would be a major hit on their local economy. And they resented Jesus for this. Leave us alone, Jesus. Take off and get out of here. Your kingdom coming like this has affected our way of life too much. 
And my friends, how disruptive is the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom of God to our settled human arrangements? Yes? These folks are no doubt upset about the loss of their earnings. Never mind that an image bearer has just been set free so powerfully. Never mind that the mercy of God toward a human being has just been so mightily on display. These people are more concerned with the pigs and the bacon. Their financial interests were what mattered, not the healing of a person, of a human being. Jesus has ruined their economy and now he should leave. Now it's been pointed out here, I think accurately, that this passage is a great argument against the prosperity gospel. So notice the effect of Jesus' presence here in his kingdom is that the local economy actually tanks instead of growing and prospering, right? Jesus shows up, finances go down. Jesus isn't going to push against their request to leave. He will leave. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, just about to leave the area, notice, the man who had been possessed with demons, more begging, begged him that he might be with him. Now put yourself in the shoes of this man. With his own eyes, like think of this, with his own eyes he had witnessed the 2,000 pigs run into the water at the very same moment, simultaneous with that moment when he had felt this tremendous freedom suddenly, this liberation that had come upon him. Those 2,000 pigs showed him, as they ran into the water, just how tormented he had been. The whole thing had been just staggering. This man knew what Jesus had done for him. Yes? This man owed it all to Jesus. Why would he not want to stay with Jesus? And perhaps this man, probably he would have had a nagging uh, fear that a, the demonic presence would return and re-enter him. And then what? Jesus wouldn't be around. So wouldn't it be better for him to stay with the one whose power had so thoroughly delivered him? Wouldn't it be better to stay with the liberator? Jesus had granted the request of the demons to go into the pigs. Jesus had also granted the request of the townspeople that he leave. But now Jesus refuses to grant the request of this man who wants to stay with him, verse 19. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what? How much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. My friends, Jesus knows we need to understand this. He knows what's best for us, doesn't he? And he knows what's best for his kingdom's purposes and he knows how he will be glorified most and here he knows that even though he himself is leaving the area by boat, there is a sense in which he will stay there as this man who has been delivered goes out and spreads the name and the fame of Jesus far and wide. 
They may have thought that they were booting Jesus out of the area, but in actual fact, his name and his fame and his glory and the message of his saving grace are going to spread throughout the Decapolis by this healed man. Jesus, what does he want? He wants this man to be a walking, talking fulfillment of Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. And so this tormented, once tormented, once violent man becomes, we need to notice, the first Gentile missionary to other Gentiles in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 20, and he went away in obedience to Jesus and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, fully clothed and in his right mind, proclaim what? How much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And my friend, I ask you now as we close a very serious question, has Jesus Christ set you free? Few of us can claim to have been in the condition that the garrison man uh, was in before Christ set him free, but if, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know how much he's done for you, right? His rescuing you, his delivering power for you is all rehearsed in the New Testament in all sorts of ways very quickly. Colossians 1.13 Believers, he has delivered us, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us, hallelujah, from the wrath to come. In Romans 6, Paul talks more than once there about how he has set, he's been set free from sin, set free from sin, rescued, delivered. Revelation 1.5, we have that tremendous truth there. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Or Titus 2.14, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawless, lawlessness. Believer, he has done so much for you. He has done so much for you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could just be with him face to face and travel with him wherever he goes. But no, he's left in the boat, so to speak. He has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, but his spirit is with us, yes? And one day he's coming back for us. And so for now, his call to each and every one of us is in verse 19 of this passage. My believing friend, having been delivered by, by him through his cross and resurrection. Here's the call to you this week. Go home to your friends, whether in person, online, whatever it is, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. This is what Jesus wants. And how he has had mercy on you. Go out this week, my friend, and spread the fame of Jesus Christ. Share his gospel with another person. Be an agent of Christian hope in this dying, desperate age. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, if we were to catalog all the things that you have done for us, 
the catalog would be just too long, <laughs> Lord. We praise you and we thank you that you are our delivering, rescuing, redeeming God who has done for us, all of us, what we could not do for ourselves, Lord God. You have set us free and rescued us so that we have eternal life, and at death, we are looking at more life with you eternally. We praise you and thank you this morning, and be with us in power as we go out and share your gospel and the name of Jesus with others. Amen.